0: Well, good morning. Um, If we don't know each other, my name is Dave Heinrichs, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my pleasure to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 5, so if you have your Bibles, I just encourage you to turn there. Uh, There's Bibles in your pew, and we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 27 this morning. Just let me pray as you were turning to the Word this morning. Father, thank you so much for all that's already taken place this morning. What a blessing it's been to our hearts, and we, it's our, our hope and desire that our praise and worship is honoring to you. I think about those lyrics that sit out to me this morning that say, I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, God. My failures and flaws, you've, you've seen them all, and you still call me friend. I pray for each one of us this morning with whatever we're going through or even uh, as we open the word this morning to what can be a convicting word, I pray that we would remember that, that our failures, our flaws, you've seen them all, yet you still love us. You still call us friend. And more than that, you call us into a transforming relationship with you, that you will do a good work in us. And pray that we would be people who are, uh, we wouldn't be resistant to the good work that you want to do in our lives. But help us to be willing participants with you. We love you. We trust you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21. These are the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Well, when my children were little, when they were in elementary school, uh, we would bring them to school and the teacher would have the children line up along the wall at the door and wait for the bell. And when the bell would ring, that's when the teacher would come and get them. And for us as parents dropping them off, all the parents would just wait around you know, for that to happen, right? Because you wouldn't just drop your kids in line and just abandon them. I, I never did that. I always waited. Uh, and I remember when one of my son's was in grade one, so just six years old, and he's waiting in line. There were a couple of other boys who were in line who regularly teased him. They would say things about him that weren't kind. They would take things from him, like his backpack. And it frustrated me. It frustrated me too because their parents were standing around like the rest of us and they didn't do anything about this. They were either oblivious to what was happening or they saw it and they just ignored it. And then I found out that things got worse when there were no adults around. At recess and lunch, this, this teasing, it grew into low-level bullying and so did my frustration. It became anger. And so I started to imagine, even fantasize, what I would do about this situation. Perhaps I would go up to, their, to these boys, to their parents, and say to them, it's no wonder your children are such delinquents when the parents are so negligent themselves. Some of you are laughing. Or maybe... I thought I'd just go to my son and say, don't worry, son, these kids are just jerks. Someday they'll get what's coming to them. Now, most people would probably be understanding of the anger that I felt at that time, though they may not condone those actions that I had imagined if I had reacted in either of those ways, but they might just chalk it up to me just being human. Some may even think I was being a good dad and that these responses that I thought of, well, they're not all that bad. But perhaps our problem is our concept of what's good and what's bad. Most of us think that bad people are those who do really awful things. You know, criminals and murderers, these are the people who should fear judgment, right? But anger and name-calling, especially if someone deserves it, Oh, that's not that bad. That's just being human. No one goes to hell for that. But in the passage we just read this morning, Jesus redefines those boundaries. He erases the line that you and I draw in the sand about what's good and bad and who gets into heaven and who doesn't. And what we discover is that God's kingdom has no place for our anger. So, today we are returning to our series on the Sermon on the Mount that I've entitled Life in God's Countercultural Kingdom. And it's been a while since we've talked about it because, thank you very much, Christmas and Advent, you know, we paused for those things. But we kicked it off with talking about how Jesus was traveling around Galilee and he was preaching this sermon where he was inviting people to become citizens of God's coming kingdom. He preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And this repentance that Jesus preached, it was his invitation for people to no longer live for themselves or live as the world tells us to, but to turn. Because that's what the word repentance means. It literally means to turn, from going from one way to another. And so he was inviting people to turn from their own way and to follow him, to live in sync with God to begin living the way citizens of heaven live. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes the attributes that characterize heaven citizens. He says that they are people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They show mercy. Heaven citizens are peacemakers. Now, some of these things, they may not seem so countercultural to us at first glance, but as we begin to see in today's passage, Jesus is going to take some cultural norms that pretty much we all agree with, like things like don't murder, and he's going to extend them a whole lot further than most of us are comfortable with. So he extends the prohibition against murder here to our capacity to get angry and insult people. Now the passage previous to this one is actually critical for our understanding of the next section of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to be diving into in the next few weeks. However, it's been a while since we looked at that passage, so let's do a a real quick refresher of what we learned back then. In chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, uh, Jesus says to his disciples that he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, And he says that our righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven. The law that Jesus is referring to in these verses, uh, which he had not come to get rid of but to fulfill, it's the scriptures. In his day, those are the books of Genesis through Malachi. And in these scriptures, God gave principles and instructions in order for his people to live by to have a good life, and to maintain good relationships, good relationship with God and with other people. But the law the religious leaders advocated for people to follow was the oral law or the scribal law. It was the one that, it was a list of regulations that these Jewish religious scribes and scholars came up with to help people live out Scripture's instructions, but it ended up just reducing... um, God's principles into a code of rules that made faith about duty. It made it about our compulsion instead of a relationship with him. And what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus comparing the scribal law and its misinterpretation of God's principles with his correct interpretation and command. So beginning today and going into the next weeks, we're going to see this pattern of that Jesus says this phrase, you have heard it said this, but I tell you this. So Jesus is contrasting the scribal law with his own interpretation. And what the big idea that we gleaned from Matthew 5:17 to 20, was that the scribal law, it just dealt with the person's external activities and behaviors. But Jesus's correct interpretation and fulfillment of God's word, it deals with what's going on inside of a person. Jesus deals with a person's attitudes and the activities that come from the heart. He deals with the source. Where the scribal law it only dealt with the symptoms. And righteousness, it's not primarily about our own virtue or about our ability to keep the rules, but the kind of righteousness that Christ's kingdom requires, it's all about right relationships with God, with others, with ourselves, and with the creation. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, he fulfills the requirements of righteousness in us, through his life in us, And as we walk in faith with him, Christ begins to transform us. Too often what we do is we shortchange this good news. We reduce it to only Jesus coming to just forgive us of our wrong actions, deal with our past mistakes or our outward sins. But these are only the symptoms. Jesus came to do so much more. He came to change us from the inside out. God says... In Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of someone who has received this heart transplant. What a person who's been changed from the inside out looks like, and it's revolutionary. A person who has been changed like this truly is countercultural. And in today's passage, we see that these kingdom citizens are those who do not burn with unrighteous anger. They don't speak or even think insults about others. He says it's not just murderers who need to be aware of judgment, but anybody who feels unrighteous anger needs to sit up and pay attention. Anyone who's ever thought of somebody else as an idiot, rakah, he says, means empty-headed. Or if you've ever called someone a fool. I remember teaching this very passage to a group of teenagers and then driving home along the heat Highway and there was another commuter who was cutting in and out of traffic and I just thought to myself, such an idiot. And right away I was convicted, right? And right away I'm like, oh Lord Jesus, I'm sorry I did that. Like I just taught on this, help me to change. Within less than a minute this person cut me off and I've, I said out loud, You idiot! This moment made me realize that our propensity towards anger and name-calling, it's not superficial. This is something that goes deep down into our human condition. And Jesus sounds the alarm here with the most dire of warnings, saying anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Can he really mean that? That anger is on par with murder. Is Jesus serious? Indeed, he is serious. But why? So First, we need to understand why murder is so heinous to God. The first chapter of the Bible tells us that we were made in God's image. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, God created people in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so this passage affirms that you and I have intrinsic value, having been made in God's image. So there is incredible self-worth built into every human being. God made women and men and called them very good because in some way, we reflect him and it's the fact that we are made in god's image that lies behind the command forbidding murder. In Genesis 9, god says, "I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed for in the image of god has god made mankind." So you see, taking a life, it's not just a crime against that person, but it's also an offense to God because that person reflected him. They were made in his image. So murdering another person not only snuffs out a life, but it diminishes the image of God. So it's a very serious sin. And what Jesus is saying here in this passage is something that many of us understand only far too well And that is that murder, it is not the only way to snuff out a life. Killing someone is not the only way to diminish the image of God in another person. You see, the scars of verbal abuse in homes and schools or online harassment, they testify to the incredible damage that they cause. And so when you and I are inappropriately angry with others, we're attempting to take their value as God's image bearers away from them. When we disparage another person by calling them names, we exchange the great value that was given to them by God with one based on our anger which demeans and attempts to make them worth less. And so anger and name-calling, they're not just a crime against that person but an offense against God because the other person is made in his image and our anger and name-calling attempt to diminish that image, God's image. And so there is no place for our anger in his kingdom. But there is a couple of things that I should clarify. There is a place in God's kingdom for anger. Just not ours. Not human anger. Not anger that is so often marked by selfishness and pride and ignorance. Jesus himself got angry and yet he never sinned. One example I think that does a really good job of contrasting the anger of humans with the righteous anger of God is seen in Luke chapter 9. In this account, Jesus, he sends a bunch of messengers ahead to a Samaritan village in order to prepare the way for his arrival. But the people of the village, they didn't want Jesus to come, and they didn't welcome him. When they heard of this rejection, his disciples, James and John, burning with anger, asked Jesus if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven in order to destroy the villagers and everything in the village. Certainly, I think that they were right to feel insulted or even hurt because of this rejection. But to suggest to Jesus that these Samaritans deserve to be incinerated clearly shows that James and John's pride and ignorance. In response to their offer, Jesus turns and he rebukes James and John. Jesus is angry but not with the Samaritans, but with his own disciples' response, with what is taking place in their hearts. And he wants James and John to know that there was no place for anything like that with him or in his coming kingdom. You see, we see through Jesus here that there is a place for anger that is righteous, and that is when it is directed towards sin, and when it is in keeping with right relationships, like when he rebuked his disciples. And so there is a place for us to be angry when it is like Jesus towards sin and in keeping with right relationships. So then we can be angry. We can can be incensed with racism. We can get angry when women are exploited or when you see injustice done to others. We should be indignant over abuse to the environment or however God is dishonored. This kind of anger is good and right. And so when my son was being picked on, my anger over his pain was correct. It was in keeping with right relationships. It was righteous. However, the way that I imagined responding was not. And quite frankly, the anger that I often feel, it's not righteous either. We easily slip from this righteous anger into unrighteous anger, which is characterized by pride and hatred or even revenge. So my desire to humiliate those parents... Uh, or to call the kid names, even if that was just in my mind, it was wrong. It was unrighteous. It would attempt to diminish the image of God in them. But it also, in turn, diminishes the image of God in me because it's sin. And every time you and I sin, we look less like our Heavenly Father. And there is no place for that kind of anger in His kingdom. Now, I need to be clear, I'm not just talking to those of us whose anger comes out loud or confrontational or abrasive. You might be the kind of person who does a really good job of keeping your anger inside well hidden, or perhaps you're passive-aggressive. Thank you for that. Yeah. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the condition of our hearts. He's talking about what's going on inside, right? Not just the external actions. So no matter how you display your anger, you're no better off. And Jesus is still speaking to you too. Jesus is speaking to each one of us. If anger and name-calling put us in danger of the fire of hell, then we must avoid it like the plague. But how do we do that? Is it possible to avoid this anger? Yes, it is with God. And if we work at it, too. You know, I remember when I was a teenager, my dad confessed to me and my brothers that he struggled with anger. Thanks for the confession, Dad. It was obvious, right? Like, for, Especially for me, I was the spark a lot of the time. But the fact that he confessed it and he asked my brothers and I and and my mom to pray for him for that. And like 20 years go by and it's even hard to imagine him getting angry. Like sure, he can get irritated sometimes and him and mom can still squabble with the best of them probably when their son uses them as a sermon illustration without even asking. Thanks guys, I know you're watching. Uh, But see... I have such great hope for myself because of what I was able to witness in my own father, seeing how he has overcome his anger through his dependence on Christ. See, this transformation, it happens from the inside out. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process, right? 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we are being transformed into the, his image, with ever increasing glory, and it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This transformation, our sanctification, it comes from the Lord. Now, you may recall at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus blessed a whole bunch of people, and one of the people he blessed are those who were poor in spirit. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are blessed because they have nothing and they recognize their poverty. They recognize that they are no better than anybody else and because they have nothing, they cannot save themselves. And so they live in dependence on God. They cling to Jesus and it is by his grace and through spending time with him that they are transformed. And so this is how you and I are able to be changed as well from the inside out, when we recognize our poverty and we abide in Christ. Jesus also instructs us to practice reconciliation. When we've messed up with name calling or when we're inappropriately angry with another person, we need to do all we can to wrong those right rela- to right those wronged relationships. And He gives us two examples in our passage this morning and one of them is actually quite comical he says in verse 23 therefore if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you leave your gift in front of the altar first go and be reconciled to them then come and offer your gift it's hilarious no one's laughing here okay Remember, Jesus is talking to a bunch of believers in what city? Anybody? What area? Galilee, right? And the altar that he is speaking about is in the temple in Jerusalem, which that's a three-day journey that they would have to make. And the sacrifice that they would make on the altar for that gift, it was a live animal. Often it would be a sheep that the person raised themselves, or perhaps when they got to Jerusalem, if they were poor, they would buy a couple of pigeons or doves to make that offering. And so you have someone who's making a three-day journey to go to this altar in Jerusalem. They're standing in line, waiting to make their presentation on the altar, and while they're there, they just remember, Jimmy, back in Galilee, has an issue with me. And so They're going to stop, leave this live animal in the temple courts so they make that three-day journey back to Galilee, find Jimmy, make reconciliation with them, and make another three-day journey back, hoping that this animal is still there so that they can make their sacrifice. Now do you see how comical it is? It's a, thank you, some laughter. It's absurd, right? Right? But Jesus is trying to make a point with this parable here. And that is that reconciliation, it takes priority over worship. Reconciliation must be a day-by-day way of living for us because if it isn't, it is going to interfere with our worship of God. And we aren't to let anything interfere with that. The second illustration Jesus gives, he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Now the phrase, settle matters quickly with your adversary that he says here, theologian N.T. Wright says it's actually better translated, make friends with your adversary, Followers of Christ, Wright says, are to be people who seek the kind of reconciliation that creates friends out of enemies because if we don't, we may find ourselves in a situation of no return which Jesus calls imprisoned and penniless. So now going back to that story about these kids who were picking on my son and my desire to do something about it, I prayed about it and I clearly heard the Holy Spirit tell me to stay out of it specifically me, I was not to interfere, I was not to do anything, and i got to say, that's really hard for me, but I did. Meanwhile, I don't know how, but my son began to make friends out of these two characters, so much so that they were asking their parents and begging us if they could come over for playdates. He even ended up bringing a Bible to one of these kids, and that opened the door for Andrea to become friends with the mother. It was beautiful. It resolved in a way I never could have anticipated. Reconciled relationships. Imagine how things would have ended if I would have acted out of my anger. Jesus makes this possible. He's the only one who makes it possible for us to be transformed so instances of anger become fewer in our lives. He makes it possible. He makes the way for reconciled relationships where we thought there wasn't a hope. So we need to trust and obey Jesus. So if God's kingdom has no place for our anger and we want to be a part of his kingdom, then we need to do something about it. Jesus warns us what will happen if we don't. He says that we'll be in danger of the fires of hell. Hell is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was a valley in the southwest, just southwest of Jerusalem. And it was a place where they would bring the garbage from Jerusalem. And like they do in many countries, they would burn it. And so there were these constant fires in Gehenna from burning all of the garbage of the city. So it's quite an apt illustration for the final judgment to come. Hold on a moment. So I have this garbage can with me here today. And for us, it represents... Gehenna. This is Jerusalem's garbage dump. Hell. And what Jesus, I believe, wants from people is that rather than facing the judgment of hell for ourselves, for our anger, or rather than us saying to hell with the people that we're angry with, I think he wants us to give up our anger. How about, We put it in the trash today. How about we say, to hell with our anger. What that means is we need to begin reconciling as Jesus instructs us to. It means we need to watch our attitudes and our words, the gossip, the the angry Facebook rants, or the little mean-spirited remarks on Instagram that we think are funny. Let's get rid of those. Let's put them in the trash where they belong. So in your pews today, I put little strips of paper, and there's little tiny golf pencils that are in there. So I want to invite the worship team to come on up, and they're going to play some instrumental music for a little while and give us an opportunity to think and to write something down. What I would encourage us to do is to write on those little slips of paper, something that we've been angry with. Perhaps it could, perhaps you know right away. Perhaps it's come to your mind as soon as I read the passage this morning. Perhaps it's another person's disrespect or feeling as if you've been, you know, overlooked or unappreciated. Maybe you've been treated unfairly. I would encourage you, write it down. You could simply just write down one word or you could write down, Lord, I give up my anger about And then put whatever it is you're struggling with. You know, I did this one other time in another church. And I brought the garbage can out to the foyer. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring it out to the foyer. So you know what has to come up and do anything. And then you take that little piece of paper after the service. And you just fold it or crumple it up. And just, you know, throw it in there. But the last time I brought it to another church is, the only thing ended up in there were some empty coffee cups. You know I know that church I love them but I know that there's anger to deal with Friends I love I love our church but I also know that there's some anger to deal with here So just so there's no end so ambiguity there's anger only in this one No one's going to take these out and read them. In fact, when I told the staff about this, they were really excited. Noah said to me, oh, we can take it out to the parking lot the next day and burn them. So that's what we're going to do. But by writing this down and throwing it away, we're giving it to the Lord. We are symbolically getting rid of these destructive things, these destructive thoughts. We're committing to stopping saying those words that wound And so to hell with our anger. It goes into the trash where it belongs because it has no place in God's kingdom. And so it has no place in us either. Let's spend some time and bring this before God.